Hi, I'm Olivia Belanger, and welcome back to Invisible Illness. This episode's guest is Ellen Driscoll, a 64-year-old Swansea resident who's been living for years with dysautonomia, a nervous system disorder that disrupts her autonomic body processes, like her blood pressure and her heart rate. Full disclosure, Ellen was the media director for The Sentinel from 1998 to 2012 when she left because of her illness. I had never met her prior to our interview, though some of my coworkers remember Ellen from her time with us. Now, Ellen is the president and managing editor for the National Dysautonomia Information Network, also known as Dynet. In this episode, Ellen talks about how her life has changed with chronic illness and how working with Dynet has helped empower her. And like our first guest, Sabrina Leaf, Ellen also discusses her difficulties getting diagnosed. If you haven't yet, I highly recommend going back and listening to episode one first. Otherwise, without further delay, here's Ellen Driscoll. I'd love to start um, with your diagnosis when you were first diagnosed. Can you walk us through that? Sure. I was, um, I had a second spine surgery that um, fused my thoracic spine all the way down to lumbar, front and back. And um, I woke up in the hospital in the recovery room, and every time they tried to sit me up, I, my blood pressure tanked and my heart rate went through the roof. And it took about, I don't know, three or four days for them to get me upright. Thought it was all done. And then I started having a lot of symptoms um, following that. Like within a month, as I started trying to move around, trying to get ready to go back to work, I started um, having dizzy spells when I stood up Mm -hmm. and, um, and would come close to fainting, but not really like a faint. I would end up on the ground, but... I could hear everything around me, but I couldn't move. I would lose all control of my body. And it was terrifying. Yeah. So I started going to different doctors to find out what was going on. They started sending me to cardiologists. And they all said the same thing. Oh, it's a panic attack. It's a panic attack. Luckily, my primary care physician, who's a woman who had known me for quite a while, said, what does it feel like? Do you feel... Uh, doom do you feel a sense of um of fear or anything preceding these episodes and i said no all i do is i stand up and start to walk and it happens i kept going back to the cardiologist and saying it's not a panic attack (laughs) and they kept saying yes it is you're you're depressed you're anxious i was neither my primary care actually handed me uh an article that she had printed out about POTS, which was the first time I had ever heard it. It stands for Postural Orthostatic Tachycardia Syndrome, which is why they condensed it to POTS. And at first when she said, have you ever heard of POT? I was like, yeah, (laughs) Yeah, I smoked it for a long time, you know? And she was like, no, 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 that's not it. So um, she told me to take it to my cardiologist and ask him, if he would consider this. He took one look at the paper and and crumpled it up in a ball and said, no, you don't have that. About a year and a half passed with at least four different cardiologists, multitude uh, of tests with wearing cardiac monitors for a week, for a month even, one of them. And the whole time I was still going to work. And these episodes were happening with more and more frequency, the more active I became. So I would go up that staircase, you know, at the Sentinel and I'd get to the top and I'd be on the floor. So uh, finally, my primary care found a neurologist. She said, maybe we need to go 
through neurology instead. And the neurologist who I saw, who was also a woman, said, oh, no, it's, it's not a panic attack. Your doctor's right. Um, this is probably related to your thoracic spine being interrupted, the signal from your brain. And, and um, she asked me if I knew anything about dysautonomia. And that was the first time I had ever heard that word. Mm-hmm. And um, she said, you know, you don't actually have the symptoms that fit completely in with POTS, but there are 15 forms of dysautonomia. And I think you have one of those. And then there was a lot of testing for that, and then it, the diagnosis was finally confirmed. Mm-hmm. But bef- the most frustrating part was that none of the doctors that I saw would even consider it. Yeah. And it's pretty prevalent within um, that diagnosis uh, to have doctors determine that it has to be anxiety and panic attacks, so they don't even look further. Um, to see if there's actually something going on. Yeah, and, and so how long did it take for you to get that diagnosis? Do you remember? Oh, it was about three and a half to four years. Wow. And that was fast. Most people with dysautonomia takes about seven years on average. And so how often were you having those spells? Oh, up to 20 a day. By the time I left work and, and had to go on disability, it was like 20 a day. Right. And, and so through your work with Dinah, just like skipping forward mm-hmm. a little bit, um, can you talk about like how common your situation is, especially among women, um, for like not getting that diagnosis and sort of just living with those spells and not understanding what's going on? Right. You know, I hate to make it into a, a sexist thing, but there is this uh, notion from male doctors in particular, when they see especially young women come in and say, you know, I'm, my heart races and I feel faint and this is happening to me. The first thing they jump to is that it must be anxiety and depression. And not that that, the the thing that's tough with chronic illness is when you have been ill for a while, and especially when you're not being heard, Mm -hmm. you do become anxious and depressed. I mean, I was anxious to leave the house by myself. Because when I'd have an episode out, people would try to call 911 for an ambulance, but the recovery from an episode in terms of consciousness is under five minutes. Right. So, you know, I didn't want an ambulance called. I didn't want, you know, so I was afraid to go out alone because it would happen. But it doesn't happen when you're driving, so there's no reason to stay in except fear. So, you know, it's very common. That's, it's the number one complaint that people deal with yeah. is they can't get diagnosed because they can't get past that. And then once it's in your medical chart, the next doctor you go to sees that the first doctor thought it was anxiety and right. depression and that you wouldn't hear, wouldn't hear it. Right. How did they come to terms to that? Like, I know you talked about going to the neurologist, mm-hmm. but like, did they do certain tests? Like, is there anything that people who might be experiencing this should be doing to, right. to get one? Well, the, the, Test that really needs to be done first is called a tilt table test. Mm-hmm. And it met you, you lay on a board and it, the test is just what it sounds like. They move you upright and they monitor um, your autonomic system, mm-hmm. which is at the basis, the core of dysautonomia is a dysfunction of the autonomic system. Mm-hmm. It doesn't, oh, it's not always 100% 
positive for people, you could still have dysautonomia and pass that test. Mm -hmm. Um, because you know, sometimes it takes up to 10 minutes for you to have an episode after rising. And how did it feel for you to finally receive that diagnosis? You know, what's really funny, I guess, is that I was so happy (laughs) to get the diagnosis, even though what they were telling me is this is a chronic condition that you're going to have to live with. I'm not being told that it's all in my head Mm -hmm. and I can do something about it. I I desperately wanted to be able to take action to get a handle on my life, you know. So what were your next steps after being diagnosed? How do you... Um, how do you live with this? You know, what are, what are, does that look like? For a lot of people, it's medication. Mm-hmm. Medication didn't work for me. Um, the side effects, I didn't like the side effects and sure. it didn't, the positives did not outweigh the negatives. Mm-hmm. So for me, it had to do with, um, radical lifestyle changes. I had to increase my salt. I had never used salt on food, um, before, so I started eating salty food and salting everything. I drink a minimum of 65 ounces of, of fluid a day. Okay. Um, Electrolyte-rich foods and drinks helps a lot. But mostly it was the way I moved mm-hmm. that made a difference. And I know that sounds weird, but you know, before I became ill, I moved constantly. Mm-hmm. I was you know, always mostly running to somewhere. I hiked a lot. I was, you know, I was very proud of my fitness level, yeah. even at 40, which is when all this kind of all started for me. The biggest thing for me, the challenge was learning how to not move like that anymore. Mm-hmm. When I stand up, I have to take a minute to just let everything settle, let my blood pressure, let the pooling that happens in your legs when you sit, mm-hmm. let everything readjust, let my blood pressure, my heart rate adjust. Yeah take a few deep breaths and then move. Mm -hmm. And that's really hard to do for somebody who's used to being super active, you know? And so before your diagnosis, you were dealing with about like 20 spells a day. Mm. How does that look now? Um, I'll go through what we generally call flares Mm -hmm. where it'll not, it never has gone back to 20 a day, but it'll go to maybe you know, five to eight a day if I'm during a flare. But um, most of the time, you know, like even when I just answered the door to let you guys in, I got up from, I was sitting, reading, Mm -hmm. got up, went to the door, I was fine. But then after you came in, I had to stand there for a little Mm -hmm. bit before I came back into the room because I could feel my heart rate going up. So I can catch it now. I can catch the episode before it happens a lot of times, which, you know, that's not true for everybody. Sometimes people don't ever get to that point, but I have been able to sort of outmaneuver it a little bit, um, somewhat. When I remember, a lot of times I don't remember, you know, and I'll get up and start moving and then, you know, it's too late. And has your diagnosis affected, you know, your family at all um, or, you know, how has it affected, you know, the other people that are in your life? I think it's radically affected everybody, really, because um, they have to remember for me a lot of times that I'm moving too much, I'm, I'm bending too much, I'm, you know. My daughter has done a lot of research into it. She knows the most about it. The, the one that's 
change that it's affected the most, I think, is my 10-year-old granddaughter. Because even though she's not frightened by it, she knows, you know, I've had to prepare her because I'm alone with her a lot. And I don't want her to be scared if I'm on the floor, you know. And so, um, so she knows all about it, but she is the one that she'll see if I, if I stop moving all of a sudden and I, cause I can't even speak if I'm trying to catch myself mm-hmm. and get a hold of my heart rate, I, I have to just kind of freeze in place mm-hmm. and just let everything settle. And she'll be up, she'll be up and she'll be running for, you know, my oxygen or my water or whatever, you know, to cool me down to, to, to so she, you know, I, I'd like to think that it, has prepared her (laughs) to be a good caretaker at some point in her life or, or to be more, I think she definitely has learned empathy at a very young age. Um, hopefully it hasn't made her anxious, Yeah, but yeah, you know, it is what it is. Yeah. And, and your work with Dinette, I wanted to ask you about this because I know for some people working with an organization that's so close to home with you dealing with the disease that you're talking about, that can be a little bit too much. I was just curious mm-hmm. if you ever had that conversation or um, you know, if it, it's actually really helpful for you to just be really engulfed in it all the time. What I have found, and I always share this with people who are newly diagnosed, getting out of your own head, even though you're still dealing with the subject mm-hmm. of dysautonomia, but getting out of your own head and your own body to help put that hand out and help the next person who doesn't know anything, who just got diagnosed, who's terrified and feels like their world is coming to an end. Being able to do that and say, no, believe me, look at me, it gets better. You can manage this. You know, life doesn't end. It's going to change, but life changes anyway. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it, I think working with other people really has tremendously helped me adjust my perspective on the on the illness and on being chronically ill in general because I don't think initially all I thought about was what I was losing Mm -hmm. and I don't think about what I can't do anymore I think about what I still can do which is a, a real shift the other misconception I think really is more relates to chronic illness in general and that is the whole thing about invisible illness in general and that is that you look fine you don't look like you're ill and you can have days when the fatigue is so insurmountable Mm -hmm. that it's really difficult to do anything so people who are around you you know it's they have there's a learning curve for them to understand that you know, you're not using it as an excuse. You know, it's a, it's something that happens. You can't predict it. Um, and you have to be flexible, which means the people around you have to be. Right. You know, there's a thing, I don't know, have you ever heard of the spoon theory? No. It was, it was a way of explaining what a day is like mm-hmm. for someone with chronic illness in general and certainly with dysautonomia. We start out our day with maybe... if you think of it that way, right? Mm -hmm. And everything you choose to do takes a portion of that money. So if I want to, if you're my friend and you call me up and you want to go to the movies at night, 
well, then that might not be the day that I go food shopping because food shopping is going to take $50 of my right. money for the day. Your whole day is like that. And that's a, that's a radical shift to make because most people don't live like that, but you, you have to. You have to plan in advance how you're going to navigate your reserves for that day. But it sounds like you have a good support system that understands I do. that. Yeah, I do. Right. Yeah. I'm lucky. Very lucky.